my name's Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Week in Politics here on the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times is what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This week we'll be discussing the wave of strikes involving train crew, Royal Mail staff and nurses with an exclusive new poll over at bylinesupplement.com showing that 84% of the public support their demands for greater pay. Adam Bienkov, the Byline Times political editor, will be talking us through that. And we'll also be joined by Andrew Jimson, contributing editor at Conservative Home and the author of Boris Johnson, The Rise and Fall of a Troublemaker at number 10. Before that, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. That's our brilliant monthly newspaper, which features content that you can't read anywhere else. We don't have a millionaire backer or the support of large corporations. We rely on ordinary readers and listeners like you to support our fearless, non-partisan journalism, exposing corruption and holding the powerful to account. You get details on how to subscribe over at bylinetimes.com, our news-breaking website. A subscription costs from as little as £3 a month, and if you have already got one, well, why not gift another to a friend for Christmas? More details at bylinetimes.com. Welcome then to Adam and to Andrew. Adam, tell me about this survey then at bylinesupplement.com. Huge support, it would seem, for striking. Yes. So I think in, in the past, the Conservative Party and Conservative governments in recent decades have relied on listing a lot of kind of anti-trade union sentiment among voters, which relies heavily, I think, on sort of memories of things like the winter of discontent, the 80s minor strikes. And I think what our, what our poll today that we commissioned from pollsters Omnesis shows is that sentiment among the public has really turned in recent years. And it does show overwhelming support for the central demand of those going on strike, which is they should be at least be getting a pay rise at least in line with inflation. 84% of all voters saying nurses' pay should be going up in least, at least in line with inflation. 76% saying the same of teachers, 72% saying the same of rail workers. And what's, I think, also just as telling, I think, for the, the government is we asked who voters most trust to tell us the truth about the issue of strikes and public sector pay. And on the nurses' strikes, uh, overwhelming majority, 65% say they most trust nurses, just 12% say they most trust the government. And interestingly, the government has had some support from some newspapers on this issue in, in recent weeks. But our poll suggests that that doesn't seem to be having a great impact on the public, just 2% of whom say, say they most trust newspapers to tell them the truth about the nurses' strikes. Interestingly as well, Conservative voters seem to be similarly unconvinced by the government's messaging on this. Only 19% of Conservative voters say they most trust the government. That compares to 61% of Conservative voters who say they most trust nurses. And that does seem to be a very interesting shift, a sort of cross-party shift among the public about how they're seeing these strikes compared to previous strikes we've seen in previous decades. And of course, Adam, the pay review body to which the government clings and says that sets the benchmark for what we can pay nurses, they came to their findings in February before the cost of living crisis really took hold and before the war in Ukraine, which has also, as the government has acknowledged, driven up prices. Yes, and what they are offering nurses in particular seems fairly derisory, an extra £1,400 on top of their salaries. I think even many Conservative MPs are, are, have been saying this week 
that's just not realistic given the sort of scale of inflation that we're we're seeing. But so far, the government aren't really moving. And in fact, on the contrary, uh, Downing Street sort of signaling this week that they're instead looking to change the law in order to make it harder for unions to and nurses to go on strike, considering a range of options. They're considering either raising the threshold so that a majority of all public sector workers would have to actively vote rather than a majority of, of all those that have voted. Although interestingly, they're still not allowing online voting. Other ideas considering minimum service levels uh, so that tra- things like train strikes would be much harder to go ahead and actually impact people, or even outright bans on, on some parts of the public sector going on strike, as we see in the, pl- the police service, they're, they're considering extending that to uh, people like ambulance workers. So the government's still taking a very hard line on this. But as our polls suggest today, I think that's a line that doesn't ha- seem to have a huge amount of sympathy with the public. And I doubt it's going to hold for much longer. Is the government misjudging this wave of strikes, Andrew? The government's got to show that it's serious about getting control of inflation, which is what, which is something that would benefit absolutely everyone. And the point of Rishi Sunak is that he's a sober, sensible person. If he gives way at the first breath of opposition, then his claim that he's going to get the public finances sorted out, despite the enormous damage done to them during the pandemic, uh, that claim would be exploded and there'll be there'll simply be no point to Rishi Sunak. Of course, he wants the Conservatives to become more popular, but he can't do the... I mean, if, if you say, are you in favour of paying nurses more? Of course, you say yes. The the average pay for nurses is a is very difficult thing to calculate, actually, because there are so many different kinds of nurses. But it's about £34,000 a year. They get 27 days holiday plus bank holidays. They have a pension scheme which they have to pay into but the nhs pension scheme is pretty good i completely agree that nurses work incredibly hard but there are lots of other people who work incredibly hard for the same or 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 less money so i think i think sunak's got to show a bit of backbone about this Uh, he'll also he will also have to give a bit of ground but it's absolutely no good being a pushover that that destroys the point the whole point of sunak i think Although isn't there an argument for, at the very least, revisiting the recommendation of the pay review body, bearing in mind the time at which the pay review body made its recommendation and the circumstances which were relevant at that time? It seems to me that Rishi Sunak might be able to move ground and still save face by saying, well, look, we recognise that times have changed. Indeed, the government itself has pointed to the invasion of Ukraine by Russia as a reason for the rising cost of goods in the shops. So would that not give him a a potential get-out to open up a a set of negotiations? Well, it might. I mean, there'll be a recommendation next year, won't there? And that will depend on on the data you feed into the, the independent body takes takes account of next year. Maybe there'll be a favourable settlement next year. But I mean, there are 320,000 nurses. Okay, let's pay them some more. Then rail workers, well, you know, some of them are not very well paid. Let's let's pay them more. And all the other and teachers, of course, who who, who could be against paying teachers more? Well, what's the money that you're handing over? If it, if it gets devalued, the whole thing becomes completely pointless. I agree with Adam's early point that this the, the public opinion is not the same as in the 70s and early 80s when the union barons did seem to many people, in fact, were totally out of control and they precipitated the eviction of Edward Heath, a Conservative Prime Minister, then they precipitated the eviction in the winter of discontent of 
James Callaghan, who had torpedoed attempts to re- reform the unions by the Labour Party in the late 60s. He was he come up through the unions like many great Labour MPs. He got his political education through them. He believed in the unions, but the unions destroyed him. Uh, and then Thatcher put through her reforms. I rather agree, actually, that there isn't very much scope for further reform. The reforms that Thatcher did cautiously and effectively, which were entrenched by preparing carefully for the miners' strike and winning that that incredibly bitter conflict in 84 to 85, far worse than anything that's happened in these recent troubles. And then the whopping dispute in 86 when the print unions got smashed to smithereens. So we do live in a completely different, the, the framework is completely different now, even though there are echoes and even though inflation, of course, always precipitates problems. One other key difference, though, Andrew, compared to the 70s and 80s is the reality of Scottish devolution. We've seen the Scottish government directly negotiating with nursing unions. They've come to a deal, so there is no nursing strike in Scotland. We also have Scottish ministers talking about an increase of a penny in the pound on income tax and the money raised being ring-fenced, hypothecated, purely to pay for the NHS. So we now have a situation where people in one part of the United Kingdom can see a resolution to a potential nurses strike and they can see that that resolution lies with higher taxes and so there may be people in England and Wales and Northern Ireland are looking at Scotland and saying well why can't the Westminster government do the same yes by all means (laughs) I think think the Labour Party at the moment is quite cautious about saying yes we'll put up taxes at, uh, at Westminster but of course lots of people will say yes we're prepared to pay higher taxes that's almost as easy to say as, yes, we think nurses should be paid more. But when it comes to it, I think there would be a political price to be paid for that. And I, I don't know. I mean, I, don't, I, I have no idea how things will play out in Scotland. But the Scottish Health Service has had a lot of problems. And the, the Scottish government has been concentrating on, on trying to get another referendum. And I think we would be wrong to think that everything is rosy in the, in the Scottish, or is rosier in the Scottish health system than in the English one. Adam, for those of us who are old enough to remember the 70s and and certainly the 80s, the era evoked there by Andrew, there were also echoes in the coverage this week of the rail strike and the vilification of Mick Lynch, the RMT union leader, front page of The Sun. And it just seems to me that although there are elements of our political system and elements of our media that kind of are still living as if it was the 80s. Actually, times have moved on. And my sense was that the the attack on Mick Lynch was far less effective and far less wounding than were the attacks, say, on Arthur Scargill in the 80s. Yes. And we actually we, we asked as part of this poll who voters most trusted on on the issue on these issues. And there was around four times as many voters trusted Mick Lynch as trusted newspapers to cover this fairly. And actually, I think what was really striking this week was, yes, we had that some front page attacking Mick Lynch, which, as you say, I don't think was terribly effective. But there's also a Daily Express front page, which was very sympathetic to the, the cause of the nurses and calling on the government to act. And the Express, certainly in recent years, has been arguably the the most loyal to the the current conservative government so for them to be taking that position just does show you how much the public mood has changed and i think a lot of that is down to 
where we are and how we've got here. I mean, the reason there are these demands for big above inflation pay rises from nurses and other parts of the public sector is that pay in the public sector and and in the private sector has flatlined, if not fallen, over, since the Conservatives came into government in 2010. I think the overall pay rise of the public sector has gone down around 5%. In some parts of the public sector, it's gone down by around 10%. And I think a lot of public, a lot of people work in the public sector, a lot of people work in the private sector have seen their pay also flatline and gone down. So the idea of this looking at people like Mick Lynch and seeing them as sort of this demon entity that is bringing the country to a halt, I think that instead many people are very sympathetic and they're seeing their own pay packets go down in real terms. They're seeing prices going up and it's very hard for them to say, well, we think the the person in the wrong here, here is the other nurses or is Mick Lynch or the the nursing unions. So I think it's a very different situation to what we had in the the 70s and the early 80s, when there was actually a a real sense among many voters that strike actions had had gone too far and and the power of the unions had become overgrown among many voters did feel that way. That just isn't the case right now. Yeah. And I do wonder, Andrew, you know, whether the Conservatives, in a sense, are fighting the battle of the 80s again and using the tactics of the 80s when we do live in very different times and whatever the rights and wrongs of strike action in the 70s and 80s we now have many people who are facing a real terms cost of living cut and they see other workers facing the same so they'll be more inclined to be sympathetic to them i suggest i don't think the tories do suppose that we're back in the 70s. I think they rather hope we're not, actually, because Heath called that election on the question of who governs Britain, and the answer was not you. (laughs) Rishi has got to make this boring argument that what benefits everyone is getting prices back down stable. And you can't do that if everyone is going to have inflation, even, even inflation matching pay increases. Otherwise, the whole thing goes on and on and on, and that is completely hopeless. Of course, what you, the answers you get in polls very much depend on the questions you ask. I mean, I went up to Batchley, for example, during the by-election there, which Labour held, but there were people actually remembering the 70s and feeling uh, and self-employed people who felt crossed, sort of, they, they approved of what Thatcher had done in the 1970s, and I think there may be not a, there are a lot of silent people, I think, who will approve the government doing all it can not to squander taxpayers' money. Rishi Sunak and Steve Barclay, the health secretary, and the rest of them, they may not have the right tone of voice, but they have got an argument that it's our money and it's money which comes from everyone. And it comes from the... Everyone pays taxes. And looking after the taxpayer isn't quite as unpopular as you would think from these polls in, in favour of large pay increases. Yeah, if only somebody had told Liz Truss and Quasi Quarteng, Andrew. <laughs> 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 of course, Labour won the by-election in uh, Stretford and Urmston. Yeah. You mentioned the B word there, boring. And before we came on air, you were floating to me the suggestion that being boring might be Rishi Sunak's greatest asset. I think it's one of his strengths, actually. I mean, I, 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 I've observed him at Prime Minister's questions, and he has very boring but sensible positions. For example, when whenever the 
Scottish nationalists have a, have a go at him. He says, we must work together to deliver for the people of Scotland. And that's not going to make anyone's heart beat faster, but I'm quite certain a lot of Scots agree with this consensual working together for the benefit of everyone approach. And on every topic at primary questions, he has something comparably sort of unexciting but sensible to say. So I don't think Keir Starmer has yet worked out how to deal with that, actually. I mean, Keir talks in a very sort of aggrieved manner, but he hasn't quite managed to get through. And I quite take the point that the Tories may well go down to defeat in the next election, but Sunak, he has a wonderfully sort of relaxed manner at the dispatch box. He doesn't seem all sort of tense and uptight. He, he quite enjoys it, and he knows what he's going to say, and he says it. Uh, and of course, some of it's disingenuous, but he has a position. And it is very, very solid. I mean, I, I'm a bit of a sucker for Boris Johnson, but he, he's been chucked out. Liz Truss has been chucked out. The Tory party may have actually got, got, got hold of a serious and self-possessed person who has serious line on things. According to Andrew, then, Rishi Sunak is boring. I think even Keir Starmer's best friends wouldn't describe <laughs> him as exciting. So yeah. it, it sounds like the, the next election is going to be the uh, the electoral equivalent of a nil-nil draw after extra time. <laughs> well, I mean, I would agree with Andrew, actually, that, I mean, I was speaking to Conservative MPs. They largely agree with, with what Andrew was saying, is, is that we've had a long period now under both Boris Johnson and Liz Truss where politics was a bit too exciting for many voters and certainly for many conservative MPs and they're quite relieved that they've got someone in the job now who is kind of steady as they go whatever you think of his policies and the economy you're not terribly scared about the prospect of Rishi Sunak bringing down the economy and I think that works quite well for them I think the this kind of flip side to that is that if you're looking for somebody who's a bit boring and a bit ordinary well that's Keir Starmer as well and if you're a voter, you're not going to be scared about Keir Starmer going into no. Downing Street. And that is a problem for the Conservative Party. And if it's a straight battle between a boring prime minister and a boring opposition and leader, but people are fundamentally fed up with their pay going down and fed up with the economy not growing and generally fed up with the same party being in government for, for 12 or 14 years, I think it's going to be a pretty easy option for them to turn to a boring Labour leader as opposed to a boring Conservative Prime Minister. And that does appear to be what we're seeing in the polls. And it does appear to be what we're seeing in these by-election results. The um, Stretford and Ernston by-election, the Conservatives got just 15% of the vote in that seat. That's half the level of support they got in 1997. And that's actually slightly worse than the national polls suggest they would do at the moment. John Curtis, a friend of this podcast, has said that the recent uh, by-elections we've seen, including the result in Chesham, shows that we are really on course for the worst result for the Conservatives since 1997. And although Conservative MPs at the moment are quite happy with the, the prospect of, of Sunak and, and, and think that he's a big improvement on this trust, unless he starts turning that around quite quickly, and at least by the time of the local elections next spring, then I think some of that relaxed sentiment among Conservative MPs is going to evaporate quite quickly and we could be back into a situation where we're again talking about the leadership of the party and is it time to get someone back in? Interestingly, I've heard some noises that Andrew was talking about Boris Johnson. There is still some suggestion we could bring Boris Johnson back 
And he does still have a sizable support among some conservative MPs. And interestingly, if you look at some of the rebellions and some of the leaks and some of the attacks on Sunak's cabinet that have come from within the Conservative Party, they have come from people overwhelmingly who remain very loyal to to Boris Johnson. So although it may seem quite unlikely that we'll see a, a return of Johnson before the next election, I don't think we should rule it out at this point either. Andrew, I was speaking to a backbench Conservative MP who shall remain nameless from a red wall constituency, a traditional Labour seat, saying that at the time when Sunak was elected to replace Liz Truss, he was inundated with constituents calling for the return of Boris Johnson. Now, I think any fair-minded and objective observer would have to acknowledge that Boris Johnson is a liar. He's been serially dishonest, yet he still maintains this pull for some of the electorate, at least. And you've admitted, you've written this biography of him and his time in Downing Street, that that you're kind of smitten as well. Why yes. is that, Andrew? Why? Well, quite a lot of people are convinced that he's he's a liar. He certainly has a very cavalier attitude towards facts. Well, he is uh, a liar, Andrew, isn't he? I mean, even he's, even he's, <laughs> he is a liar. He's a proven liar. Well, yes, but he also tells the truth. That's the complicated <laughs> thing about it. He said he'd get Brexit done, and he did on the Northern Ireland stuff, he wasn't reliable. He gave assurances which turned out to be completely impossible to keep. He's like Disraeli. I mean, Disraeli was in some ways fearfully unreliable person, but had had this amazing connection with the wider public and made people feel good about being conservative and connected with the small C conservatism of many Labour voters in red wall seats. And that is something which Boris Johnson did amazingly well, but on which any successful conservative leader needs to do. Thatcher did it by different methods, actually. I still found people in Batley who remembered Thatcher with affection, which slightly surprised me. It shouldn't in West Yorkshire. The fact is that Adrian, you may have predicted everything that was going to happen since 2015, but and actually I did predict the Cameron's election picture, but that was the last thing I got right. I was completely <laughs> wrong about everything else, including the referendum. I don't think there's a single pundit or indeed pollster He's got a very good track record. So God knows what will happen. I think the Tories would have to be in terrible trouble for there to be a sort of draft Johnson, a serious draft Johnson thing before they've lost an election. After they've lost an election, and when he's got sort of 50 million quid in the bank, then it becomes quite more possible, I think. Yeah. Is, is there an argument, Andrew, that the uh, at least as big a threat as Labour is the Liberal Democrats, particularly in the South and South East, where you may have voters who couldn't bring themselves to vote Labour, but who don't wish to vote Conservative. And the same MP who spoke to me about the residual affection for Johnson spoke to me about the blue wall in the southern half of Britain, you know, sort of south of the Midlands, really, that could do for the Conservatives in a different way. Yes, I think that's possible. And obviously the planning thing is very dangerous for the Conservatives. And also the sort of total, almost complete loss of the young and the complete loss of young educated voters. I mean, that's a very grave problem for the Conservatives and a grave sort of long-term problem and the, and the terrible housing crisis. I mean, why should you vote Conservative if you have to spend extortionate amounts on rent and have no hope of getting a, a place of your own? So, yeah, I think that is right. And, and, and Tory MPs in the South 
know that, and they're very windy. They're, well, of course, in general, they're greatly in favour of building new houses, but they turn out to be almost invariably to side with their constituents and agree that their constituency is not the right place for these new houses to be built. <laughs> We've spoken before, Adam, about Keir Starmer's problem of not being able to attract support from outside of his immediate camp in his own right, so that we may have people who are disaffected by the Conservatives in the north and the of England and the Midlands who might vote Labour in the south and southeast who might vote Liberal Democrat, assuming that neither of them will do too well in Scotland. And he still isn't managing to exceed expectations, is he? He still hasn't got an agenda. He still hasn't got a series of policies that really reach out to the electorate. There was the big constitutional review last week, wasn't there, with Gordon Brown there, which may well include very important innovations in terms of how power is devolved, how cities are run and so on. But that isn't the kind of thing that really gets people excited, I would suggest. No, and I think the reason we saw such huge leads for Labour Party in recent weeks and months is overwhelmingly because of the situation created by Liz Truss rather than any, any sudden switch from the Conservative Party to Labour based on the idea that, that Keir Starmer was the leader they'd been waiting for. So it's kind of a negative support that, that he, he's managed to secure rather than than positive. But, you know, in democracy, it doesn't matter how you get the votes as long as you get them. And if he can win an election by being quite dull and just being more popular than the the other guy, then that they'll be quite happy with that. But the problem is, uh, Sunak is not Liz Truss. And actually, there has been a slight narrowing in the polls in, in recent weeks, in which those Conservative switches, some of which have started to go back, because, in large part, because they Sunak's own personal ratings are a lot better than the Conservative Party's own ratings. If that trend continues, uh, Sunak is actually able to drag his own party's reputation back up with him, then it could become a fair bit closer. But there is a wider problem in terms of enthusiasm for the Labour leader. He often does take positions which are very much out of line with his own core support. I think particularly on the issue of Brexit, uh, he was interviewed at the start of the week by Radio 4, and he was asked about rejoining the single market. I think there are arguments for and against rejoining the single market. But he made this argument that it would actually it wouldn't help the economy to rejoin the the single market. And I think you would struggle to find an economist who would who would agree with with that position. But yet he's he's sort of taking a slightly disingenuous position, which you know it's hard to believe that he actually believes that's that's the true economic position to take. So he, he does has a sort of knee-jerk reaction to every position to try and take the line that is the least terrifying to Conservative voters and, and, and Brexit supporters. But it doesn't then lead to much enthusiasm from his own core vote and from natural Labour supporters, which our own polling has shown overwhelmingly want the Labour Party to take a much stronger line against Brexit and a much stronger line on, on rejoining the single market and even rejoining the EU. The gamble that he and the Labour Party leadership are are taking is that Labour voters don't have anywhere else to go, and ultimately they will end up backing potential Labour government over the current Conservative government. And they may be right on that, but I don't think we're going to see the same sort of levels of enthusiasm for a Starmer government as we saw in 1997 for Tony Blair. One final 
thought, Andrew. This week, we saw yet more tragic deaths in the channel by people seeking to come to the UK, whether fleeing persecution, seeking refuge in this country, whether seeking to better themselves. And Rishi Sunak has said that people who arrive in this country from what are deemed safe countries, he wants those people to be returned immediately. It isn't always as simple as that, though, is it? I've seen figures suggesting that half of the women from Albania, which is deemed by the UK to be a safe country, half of the women who arrive here, or nearly half of them, are granted asylum because they are regarded as victims of modern slavery. So even in a safe country, we can't simply say those people don't have a right to stay here. If the Tories don't get a grip on this, which they certainly haven't so far, then that's very, very bad for them because all that stuff about taking back control, it looks totally out of control in the channel. And the fact that it's out of control in in lots of other parts of the world as well is no consolation as far as angry voters are concerned. I was interested in Prime Minister's questions this week. Danny Kruger suggested that the, the government is going to have to leave or to draft a new version the European Convention on Human Rights was drafted by, quite largely by British lawyers in the early 50s, Churchill as Prime Minister, that it's going to have to be replaced. And Sunak said that the measures he announced on Tuesday will be sufficient. Well, I think it's very unlikely they will be. It is terrible having these very vulnerable people in boats in the channel. And it's got to be stopped. And I think Sunak, actually, his tone will remain very moderate, but I think he's working towards a pretty hardline position on this, and it may well include tearing up the European Convention on Human Rights. And that will be incredibly difficult for Starmer, because, of course, you know, he he has a complete, he's a human rights lawyer, and he completely believes in it, in the whole apparatus of human rights. I think Andrew's right that this is a very difficult issue for the Conservative government to deal with. And Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, has been taking quite a, at least rhetorically, quite a a strong line on this. I think the difficulty for the Conservative Party is it's very well to sort of raise the prominence of these issues as long as you've got a solution. And right now, the, the Downing Street are not are saying that they're not intending to rip up the ECHR, whether or not they, they will yeah. remains to be seen. But if you're not doing that, and even if you were to do that, would that necessarily solve the problem of people trying to cross the channel? I, d- I doubt that it, that it would. And are you able to solve this problem before the next general election? Again, I think that's unlikely. So given all of that, I think it's quite dangerous for the Conservative Party to sort of attempt to raise the prominence of this issue even further than it already has been raised in in the public eye. So I think this is quite dangerous ground for the Conservative Party, although I do agree with Andrew that I do think it, it is a problem that they are going to have to address over time. I know that whenever I speak to refugee charities, they always say that what really needs to happen is for safe routes to be instituted, not just for people fleeing from Ukraine, but from other parts of the world as well. But listen, it's been really fascinating. Great to have you on, Andrew. Andrew Jimson, the author of Boris Johnson, The Rise and Fall of a Troublemaker at number 10. And thank you to Adam Bianco. You can read more from Adam 
over at bylinesupplement.com as well as over at the uh, Byline Times. And if you check out bylinesupplement.com, you'll get a, a bonus early listen of another episode of the Byline Times podcast as well, talking to a couple of musicians about whether we as consumers should or shouldn't use Spotify. And don't forget, we are supported by subscriptions to the Byline Times. Please take out a subscription or maybe gift one to someone for Christmas. Head over to bylinetimes.com for more details. This has been the Byline Times podcast. We'll see you again very soon. But for now, cheers. Bye-bye and Merry Christmas. <laughs>